Gino takes the snap, four-man rush. Gonna half roll, throws back inside, reaching up, making a catch. Touchdown, Seahawks! Are you kidding me? It is DK Metcalf. 7.02 on a Friday. Happy Friday, everybody. Halford Bruff, Sportsnet 650. Halford Bruff of the Morning is brought to you by the Delari family of Acura dealers. Experience the Delari difference today by visiting your nearest Delari Acura dealer today. Hour two of the program. It's underway. Brady Henderson from ESPN's NFL Nation is going to join us in just a moment here. Hour two of the program is brought to you by North Star Metal Recycling. Vancouver's premier metal recycler pays the highest prices on scrap metal. North Star Metal Recycling, they recycle, you get paid. Visit them at 1170 Powell Street in Vancouver. Uh, Kicking off hour two, I do want to reset. We're giving away a lot of stuff today on the Halford and Bruff Show on Sportsnet 650. We're going to give away a pair of tickets to go see the Canucks and the Wild tomorrow night. That's Saturday night, 7 o'clock from Rogers Arena. If you want to win tickets to that, send a what we learned or ask us anything into the Dunbar Lumber text line 650-650. Now put a ticket emoji in addition to the hashtag and write something useful, will you? Please, thank you. Uh, that'll enter you into the draw for the tickets. We are also, today is the final day to get the last entrant into the Sea to Sky exotic driving experience courtesy of Scenic Rush. So how are we going to do that today? Are we going to pick a final entrant and then also an overall winner? In the 8 o'clock hour, starting with Moj. Right before, I think we're going to do it right before Moj. Okay. We're going to pick the fifth and final finalist. Mm-hmm. Then, in the 8.30, the final segment of the week, we're going to throw that final entrant in with the four others. And we're do a pick- hat? Sure. Let's do it. Andy's, got Andy's a hat. wearing a hat. We're wearing a hat. We're going to use Andy's, your hat. Andy's wearing a hat. So, Andy, here's, here's, here's your job. Once we pick the final entrant of the week, mm-hmm. write all the names on, a, on a little pieces of scrap paper, put them in your hat, and then you and Laddie can do the draw. You can do it live on camera. Yeah. There's no paper in the building. Oh, foiled again. I'm not sure we have pens either. <laughs> <laughs> it's tight times right we've, we've run up against budget again. Yeah, you see all this crap behind me? This costs a lot of money, okay? <laughs> anyway. Uh, so that's the, the, the those are the prizes for today. Don't so, you love Andy's can-do attitude, though? Yeah, yeah. You make me do more work now. Yeah. I don't know if it's work so much. Yes. All we're asking you to do is to remove your hat. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, we got to focus though. We got a game this weekend for the Seahawks. Every game from here on in is significant and important as it pertains to their potential playoff lives. Joining us now to break it all down, ESPN NFL Nation Seahawks insider Brady Henderson here on the Halford and Bruff Show on Sportsnet 650. Morning, Brady. How are you? What's up, fellas? Happy Friday. How we doing? Yeah, happy Friday to you, too. We are well. Are we in better shape than the Seattle Seahawks backfield right now? I don't think there's uh, a whole lot of uh, groups of people who are in worse shape. Right. No, they, they are looking a little bit better uh, just because Travis Homer uh, went from limited on Wednesday to a full participant on Thursday. So okay. he is looking good. They've got Travis Homer, who looks like he's healthy, Tony Jones Jr., who's a rather healthy tailback. Uh, but that's it in terms of guys that you really feel good about playing on Sunday against Carolina because DJ Dallas and Ken Walker, the third, uh, have been non-participants on both days. And so uh, it's not looking good for them. Now we have seen guys, you know, not practice early in the week and then end up playing. Uh, We even saw Tyler Lockett not practice at all, uh, all three days. And he ended up playing. That's he's obviously a different case there. He's a, a veteran guy. These are younger running backs. Um, so I still very much up in the air. And I think with Walker, 
um, you got to realize, you got to remember, like they play four days later on Thursday right. night against right. the 49ers. And that is obviously, you know, the game that they very much need to win. Not that they don't need to win this one, but that one is uh, the most important game on their schedule. So if maybe I wonder if there's any thought that if, if they're kind of on the fence about Walker, maybe they are inclined to, to really rest him and make sure he's ready for that Thursday night game. But the fact he, he hasn't even practiced yet this week, so it, it may be moot. Like he may not be able to play one way or another. The Seahawks are just three and a half point favorites in this one at home against a four and eight Panthers side. Do you think that's a lot to do with the injuries that you just mentioned? Yeah. And the fact that look, the Seahawks two weeks ago lost at home to a three win Raiders team. And last week they struggled on the road to put away a three win um, Rams team that was very shorthanded. And so I, I think it's probably a reflection of both of those things. Um, I mean, I know the Panthers are, are, you know, four and eight, and I don't think they're as talented as the Raiders team. So this this should be a game where they win and and they don't have as much trouble as they did the last two weeks. Uh, but that's we just haven't really seen the Seahawks play that way. They, they you know they haven't had an easy win in a while, and so um, I, I think that you know this is a really an opportunity for their defense to get right. Um, you know, Dante Foreman is. You know he, he's he's a load and he's a he's a good running back and he's had some success this season, mm-hmm. uh, but they're facing a very limited quarterback in Sam Darnold and so um, this should be an opportunity for them to get right. You just can't really expect much. You can't really expect that out of a defense that's been as up and down as they have been. Let's talk a bit more about Geno Smith as we do almost every week. Uh, I think what he showed last week was that he can be counted upon to lead a game-winning drive. Um, I was very fully prepared to be very angry about the Seahawks losing to the Rams, especially after the loss to the Raiders, but he came through in the end. Um, He wasn't perfect all game, but he was pretty darn good overall, and he's been pretty darn good overall this season. Um, Has there been any more talk or any more movement, or maybe you could help us lay out a potential timeline for the Seahawks to give him a contract extension. Could this stretch all the way into the offseason? What kind of risk would the Seahawks be taking um, if they did that? Because I'm pretty sure there are a few teams around the league going, man, if he doesn't sign in Seattle, we wouldn't mind taking a shot at Geno Smith. I'm sure there are uh, several teams like that, and I wonder if Carolina could be one of them, just when you remember the fact that uh, not only is Scott Fitterer their GM, he was the former Seahawks executive, They've got a couple other former Seahawks uh, front office guys in their front office now, but also Ben McAdoo is their offensive coordinator. And he and Geno Smith have a strong relationship uh, from when they were with the Giants. And remember there was that whole weird episode where uh, McAdoo benched Eli Manning late the 2017 season in favor of Geno. uh, And then it went over like a lead balloon and McAdoo and the GM both got fired. And then the new regime reinstalled Eli as the starter um, you know, Gino brought that up again this week and talking about how much he appreciates McAdoo. Remember, after the Giants game in October, he dedicated that win to McAdoo and Reese and talked about how much they meant to him. And so uh, there's a connection there. Now, Carolina has an interim head coach in Steve Wilkes, uh, so you don't know if he's going to be around and if not, what that means for McAdoo. But at any rate, I bring that all up to say that Carolina is one of those teams that you just mentioned and we should keep an eye on them. In terms of Geno and his contract in the Seahawks, we have not seen them uh, do deals in season. I think there's only been two uh, in the 12, 13 years that 
that, that they've been in Seattle, that John Schneider and Pete Carroll have. And so um, I think that they're going to want to wait until after the season just because that's their MO. And look, Gino has, there's not much more that he has he left to do. And, and I, you mentioned the game winning drive that he led Sunday. Like that was one of the final boxes that I think he had to check because he's done everything else, almost everything else. Uh, but even dating back to last season when he was filling in for Russell Wilson, that was the one thing he really hasn't done. And he had some opportunities this season against Atlanta, uh, against new Orleans, against the Raiders, going back to last season, the first game against uh, the Rams when he played really well in relief and then threw that interception when you know Tyler Lockett fell down, so that was not his fault. Uh, but there was other opportunities, Steelers, uh, the Saints on Monday night. So he was, uh, I would say, you could say he was like 0 for 6 or 0, maybe 0 for 7. Uh, 0 for 6, I think it was, in leading game-winning drives in the, in the closing minutes of the fourth quarter or overtime, and he did it, and he was excellent on that drive. You know, their backfield was banged up. Um, they needed Smith. He was six for nine for 65 yards on the drive, including the game winner. So um, I, I still don't know what's going to happen with him, though. I, I mean, we, we talk every week about how good he is. Uh, I've mentioned how much money I think he's going to be looking for. And, again, th- these are all guesses. I don't know exactly what he's going to be looking for. That, that's just a guess. Uh, and it's just a guess as to what the Seahawks are going to do. I don't know either one. I, I really feel like Gino is going to want a lot of money, and I'm less confident um, in in my prediction that the Seahawks, uh, I guess I should say, I, I don't know what they're going to do. I right. really don't know if they're going to want to pay him as much as, as he's going to want to get paid. And so then you're talking about franchise tag coming into play, and uh, then you're talking about maybe what other teams you know, might be interested in that whole thing coming into play. And so it's, it's, there's so many variables between the two draft picks that they have, having Locke in their back pocket, uh, what Gino is going to want. So it's going to be a, a fascinating offseason storyline. For the Seahawks and Geno Smith, is it a question of cap space or is it a question of like budget? Well, I think it's it it, it always to some degree is a matter of cap space. Right. And, you know, then they, they've got they've got a lot. They've, they're going to have plenty just uh, because the dead money from Russell Wilson's contract is is coming off their books. So I think they're going to be in the neighborhood of you know, 50 million or so. So that, you know, that actually sounds like a lot, but they also don't have a quarterback under contract for next season. And especially when you start, you know, a, like a franchise tag for Gino would take 31 and a half million, something like that. And so uh, there's other things you could do as always to free up cap space. I, I think it's, I think it might just be more so like the, the not seeing eye to eye on the value. And I've talked about, you know, Gino and, and how I think that, it's clear that he thinks that he's been this dude all along. And again, I wonder if he is going to try to, in a sense, make up for lost time and say, look, I'm not giving any sort of a discount because, you know, the last 10 years have been the discount that I've been giving everybody. And and this season he's making three and a half million dollars. I actually think he's going to end up making about $7 million because he's going to hit all or most of his incentives. But at any rate, that is still vastly underpaid for how well he's playing. And so, um, I just don't know if the Seahawks are going to, if they're going to see eye to eye on it, if they're going to be willing to go as high as, as he wants, knowing that again, they've got luck. Uh, they've got the, the two first round picks. And I also wonder if part of Seattle's equation might be that, look, they've got a system in place that, you know, look, look at what's happened between Wilson, you know, falling on his face in Denver and Geno Smith coming out of nowhere to play at a pro bowl level. I wonder if they are going to look at, at their system as, 
responsible for those two things to some degree. Right. And maybe they think that they can get by with, you know, with somewhat similar play. Maybe they can get somewhat similar play out of a quarterback who's not going to cost them nearly as much as Gino is wants, whether it's Drew Locke or a draft pick. Even with all the uncertainty around Geno Smith, and by the way, we're talking with Brady Henderson of ESPN talking Seattle Seahawks on the Halford and Bruff Show on Sportsnet 650. Even with the uncertainty around the future of Geno Smith, um, have you noticed at all a change in sentiment about what should be the number one priority for the Seahawks in this upcoming draft? Has it changed from quarterback to some sort of playmaker or some guy that can help stop the run on defense? I think so. Yeah. And, and, uh, you know, there is always that, that uncertainty about Gino and the quarterback situations, but there is still talk, I think, and I'm not talking about in their building because I don't know what those conversations are like. I'm just talking about you know, the conversations that I hear among fans and that we have among fellow you know media people is, you know, there, there still is the uncertainty at quarterback. So you do talk about, you know, okay, who's that, you know, what pick might they end up with? It looks like Houston's going to end up with the number one pick. And you assume that uh, they take either Jalen Hurts or CJ or not Jalen Hurts, uh, Bryce Young or CJ Stroud. And so you know, the conversation has sort of been, well, okay, who's that next guy that the Seahawks might be able to get if they end up, you know, uh, three or four or whatever it is. But I still think, you know, most people and myself included, you know, I'm looking at edge player. I'm looking at, you know, impact front seven guys and really, a, a, a you know, most likely an impact edge rusher. And, you know, th- that's, like that's the type of guy that when you're picking in the twenties, like they usually are, you know, you're not going to get a miles Garrett, uh, Nick Bosa, Joey Bosa, chase young type guy. That's just not happening. Um, And I wonder if they're going to view this as obviously it's their biggest need. If you watch them week in and week out, they need, they need an impact defensive lineman. And I think they're going to look at this and say, look, you just, it's sort of like the Charles Cross situation. Like you're, you're not getting that stud tackle in the twenties. You're not getting that impact uh, edge rusher or interior rusher. And I, I just think that that, that should be the number one priority. You can figure out quarterback um, because you've got the options in house and you've got the other first round pick too, that maybe you spend that other first round pick or, or a second or third round pick on more of a developmental guy. Um, the impact edge rusher, I think is going to be really, really tantalizing to them. We're speaking to Brady Henderson, ESPN, NFL Nation, Seahawks insider here on the Halford and Bruff Show on Sportsnet 650. Uh, Brady, the Seahawks go into this week 7-5. and Uh, The win against the Rams last week, I think, bumped their playoff percentages to somewhere in the neighborhood of 64%. So it's still going to be a challenge, but if you look at the remaining games, you've got to say that three wins is a possibility. I know Pete Carroll kind of talked around the playoff scenario this week when he was saying, like, there is a way in and we think we know how, and obviously it's going to come down to winning some football games. I think the interesting thing here is that Baker Mayfield's former team, the Carolina Panthers, are this weekend, and then they could face Baker Mayfield in a hugely pivotal game at the very end of the season when they take on the Rams. Now, the schedule is going to have some bumps along the way. I don't know what to expect from the Niners with Brock Purdy at quarterback now. At Kansas City is going to be an incredibly difficult game. But they do have a lot of things going for them. I mentioned the 64% playoff chances. Uh, They've got a lot of games at home. And, you know, despite the injuries to Walker and everything else, still reasonably healthy. And Geno's playing, I mean, he's the second leading vote getter for the Pro Bowl, a quarterback. So I feel like there's a lot of things going for them. Uh, how do you see these final five games playing out in terms of their playoff chances? 10 win team? 
I th- yeah, I think ten wins is, is entirely in play for them. You know, you've got to win three of five. You, you are going to be favored, I think, in at least three of those uh, this week. Obviously, they are favored. Uh, they should be favored against the Jets and the Rams. They might be favored against the 49ers at home now that Jimmy Garoppolo is out and Brock Purdy is in. Uh, I think at, at any rate, like that, that Christmas Eve game against Kansas City at Arrowhead Stadium, that's that's going to be difficult. I, I just don't see them winning that game, although there's a lot of things that happened that I didn't see coming, like Geno Smith bowling out, so yeah. who knows. But yeah. uh, but I think three wins is entirely possible, and three wins should get them into the playoffs. Um, you know, So I, I, I think they're going to make the playoffs. And I think that they've got a much better chance to win the NFC West now that Garoppolo is out uh, and Brock Purdy is in. I know our, our projections at ESPN, the football power index, I think it went from like 8% to 30% uh, after that injury. And so um, I think the 49ers become a fascinating team. Obviously that game is was already important. But, you know, Brock Purdy, I, I, certainly you can't rule out the 49ers' chances of still winning a bunch of games down the stretch because they've got the best defense in the NFL. You know, Brock Purdy is also in a good spot um, compared to other quarterbacks who might be thrust into that situation because he's got the great defense. He's got maybe the best collection of skill players in the NFL. He's also got one of the best play callers, Kyle Shanahan, and they need him to kind of be, um, you know, Jimmy Garoppolo light a little bit. Garoppolo is, you know, he's not one of he's not Patrick Mahomes. He's not a guy who puts the team on his back. He's more of the distributor guy who gets the ball out to the right person, makes the right reads and everything. So um, I think they are in a good spot for a, a team that loses its starting quarterback in December or late November, like, um, I don't know much about Brock Purdy. I just know that he's he's going to a pretty good situation where he can rely on on other players and his head coach around him. By the way, can we take a minute to just appreciate how bizarre the NFC West has been in terms of quarterbacks this year? <laughs> so just to, just for everyone that uh, listening right now, uh, the 49ers started with Trey Lance, went to Jimmy Garoppolo, and are now presumably going to finish with Brock Purdy. Uh, the Rams have Baker Mayfield as their quarterback. The Cardinals with Kyler Murray signed with this massive extension. And then he has a, an absolute dog of a season. Meanwhile, Geno Smith is going to make the pro bowl and maybe take the Seahawks to the playoffs. Like this is the most unpredictable division in terms of quarterbacking that I've seen in a long time. I think that the number was like 40 hours. That's how long Mayfield had been yeah. uh, with the Rams. Cause he gets claimed on Monday. And I don't think he, or maybe he got claimed on Tuesday. I don't know if he even – I don't know when he arrived. But It was it, it Tuesday was, to Thursday. It was Tuesday, got in. I think he flew on overnight Monday night, and then Tuesday got in, studied the playbook for about 24 hours, and then went out and beat the Raiders. Yeah, and remember, when you're playing on Thursday night, these are not full-scale practices that right. a team has. These are walkthroughs. So he is he's getting walkthrough reps, uh, and he goes out and he leads the game-winning drive. That's just – incredible and, and good for him he's been through a lot the last uh, few months from getting you know ousted in Carolina uh, or excuse me ousted in Cleveland with Deshaun Watson and then he goes to Carolina and it doesn't work out there and I mean that's just incredible to do to lead that game when he drive 98 yards like that against a talented defense uh, that was really something Brady this has been great bud thanks a lot for doing this we really appreciate it enjoy the game this weekend we'll do this again next Friday all right, you got it, guys. Thank you. Thank you. That's Brady Henderson, ESPN NFL Nation, here on the Halford and Brush Show on Sportsnet 650. So Geno Smith is now number two in voting in the NFC for the Pro Bowl at the quarterback position. He mm-hmm. trails only Jalen Hurts. I, it, 
you know, I, I know we've said this week after week, like, I just can't believe that this is happening. But it's funny that he continues to tick boxes like Brady said. Like, everyone's, well, yeah, he can put up the numbers, but can he lead a, a game-winning drive in the clutch when they need him to perform? Well, he yeah. did it against the Rams last week. It's, it's remarkable the amount of stuff that Geno's done. I also think you look at the teams in the NFC, and if the playoffs were to start today, the Seahawks would be the seventh seed, and they would play Minnesota the number two team. Yeah. Now, Minnesota would be the favorite in that, right? And yeah, rightly so. home, too. But right? yeah. I don't think anyone would be like, the Seahawks have no chance in that. No. Well, one, everyone in the NFC is, if you're looking at you're a lower seed and you're going up against a higher seed, everyone wants Minnesota, mm-hmm. I think. If you had to choose between Minnesota, well, Philly, or Dallas. Tampa Bay is probably going to win their division. Yeah, so Tampa Bay will be the four. They'll, yeah. be, they'll be the four or five. But if you're looking at one of the three, or the teams that are going to get buys anyway. Right but, now it would be Dallas versus Tampa Bay in the first round, and Dallas I think would be a sizable favorite despite them being the lower seed. The Seahawks are going to be a tough out because they've really they've, they've been in every game this year. There's mm-hmm. only been maybe one or two games where it was lopsided or you just felt like they weren't in it, and those happened early in the year. The way that they can play on offense, they've got enough to put up points in the passing game, and then if Walker's healthy, they can slow it down and really turn it into a T.O.P., like time of possession, ground game type thing. Defensively is where they might get schemed out in the playoffs because I think that you can lean on them in certain areas, especially on the ground with the run, where they just can't stop you. Um, the, the, their secondary has been terrific this year. Like Tariq Woolen has had an amazing year, yeah. and he deserves all the accolades he's getting. But interior run stuffing, I think they could be maybe be taken advantage of. <laughs> yeah, I think so. But you, but you need the right opponent, right? I mean, mm-hmm. I th- again, Tampa Bay ran the ball down their throats, and Tampa Bay has one of the worst ground games in the NFL. But I just feel like. If they're going to be taken advantage of in the postseason, it's going to be on the ground, and that could be an issue. Uh, let's do a quick ask us anything here. Justin and East Van, ask us anything. I'm attending my partner's company Christmas party as her plus one. I've never met her boss and coworkers before. What should I do to make a good first impression? Okay, are we going to answer this yep. earnestly? Yep. You know what the answer is? Say less. No, here's Always the answer. Always say less. Say yes, but if you maybe in your case, Mike. Yeah, yeah. Say less. Just say um, less. Talk up your partner a lot. Yeah. Talk up your partner to her her boss and her coworkers. I was gonna say magic tricks. Well, you were on a different path than <laughs> yeah. I than we were. Just, yeah. Just come in and I would say don't make it about yourself. Make it about your partner. You're you're make there. It about the magic. You are there to support her with magic tricks. It, you don't. Ma- Okay, again with the magic trick. Okay, what might the, what, what magic trick would you go with? Well, I'd have a piece of paper and a hat, and I'd pull it out and I'd unfold it and say, "Please give her a raise." That's not magic. And I would show it to and the then, boss. The worst uh, magic trick I've ever heard. And then heard. the boss would go, "You're with this guy. <laughs> yeah, you're fired." I think less of you. <laughs> yeah. uh, we're gonna discuss this Chara thing on the other side. We're gonna hop in the old time machine and go back to 2011. Because uh, we don't care for ourselves, we we we're self-loathing, and it's over a decade since the 2011 Stanley Cup final, and yet somehow we're still discussing this thing. <laughs> You're listening to the Alfred and Bruff Show on Sportsnet 650. Time now for Sportsnet 650 traffic from the City News 1130 Air Patrol. We saw players 
from Vancouver coming on the ice in the garden and they were actually practicing how they would be lifting the cup and handing off the cup to each other and we found out wow. about these things and we were like bullet it's like we are not gonna allow this happen you know it just it just fueled us that's like acting out having sex with your wife that's the level <sighs> of disrespect that is 731 on a Friday. Happy Friday, everybody. Halford Bruff, Sportsnet 650. Halford Bruff of the Morning is brought to you by the Delari family of Acura Dealers. Experience the Delari difference today by visiting your nearest Delari Acura Dealer today. Hour two of the program is brought to you by North Star Metal Recycling. Vancouver's premier metal recycler pays the highest prices on scrap metal. North Star Metal Recycling, they recycle, you get paid. So you heard the audio. We might play it again just for good measure, just for dramatic effect. On the way back from break, we played audio of former Bruins captain Zdeno Chara. And he was revisiting that infamous 2011 Stanley Cup final series against the Vancouver Canucks uh, on a podcast with former Pats receiver Julian Edelman and stand-up comedian Sam Morrill. That's called the Games with Names podcast. Yep. I didn't investigate what that means, but you now know the title and you can't unknow it. Anyway. They were asking Chara about, obviously, his decorated Bruins career and the pinnacle of said career, winning the 2011 Stanley Cup, hoisting the trophy. Something that Chara claims the Canucks were practicing. You know, hoisting the trophy. Can we play the audio in full? I want everyone to make sure that they're hearing this on their own. Yet another chapter, improbably, of the 2011 Stanley Cup Final that happened 11 years ago. We're still writing chapters, folks. Here's the latest, courtesy of Zidane Ochara on the Games with Names podcast. We saw players from Vancouver coming on the ice in the garden, and they were actually practicing how they would be lifting the cup and handing off the cup to each other. And we found out wow. about these things and we were like, bullet it's like we are not going to allow this happen. You know, it just, it just fueled us. That's like acting out, having sex with your wife. That's the level <sighs> of disrespect that is. I didn't get the last part. I thought that was kind of unnecessary and quite frankly, very odd. But um, the- so when, when would that have been in, th- in theory? Because the Canucks traveled to Boston twice thinking that they might be hoisting the cup there they obviously won the first two games in vancouver so yeah a lot of people believe it or not we're talking about a potential sweep and so, so tra- it could have been in game could have been uh going to boston for three and four thinking that it might have been in game four or and i would say maybe this is more likely well i don't know depending how the series played out i guess it could have been ahead of game six after the canucks had shut out the bruins in game five you go back there then for it was, game it, was, it was before game three. He says it in the clip. After losing the first two games in Vancouver, we saw players from Vancouver coming on the ice in the garden. So that's when it would have been. That's when it was? Yeah. Okay. So that's to answer that question. I mean, unless he's muddled the timelines or, quite frankly, muddled the entire thing. Because I, mm-hmm. I find, let's put it this way. I find it borderline impossible that you would feel the need to practice hoisting the Stanley Cup. Right. Now, he might have been interpreting maybe guys were mimicking something or maybe someone threw their hands above their head or maybe it's one, maybe, just maybe, 
It's one of those urban legends that gets twisted way out of whack. What, Laddie, what was the one you were referring to this morning when we were discussing this? Uh, the Haley Wickenheiser, the Americans were stepping on our flag rant that turned right. out to be totally fabricated. Totally right. false, right. right. So this may be that. I still choose to believe that. Which one? The Americans. Yeah. They're, they're just, yeah. To be quite honest, for the purposes of this show, I'm going to believe Chara. <laughs> well, I think here's, here's one thing. Here's one thing that I think um, should be mentioned. I think the Canucks were pretty confident they were going to win the Stanley Cup. They were up to nothing. Yeah. I think they were acting like it. Uh, yeah. And Char also makes mention of the fact that the Canucks were calling the league and asking them about the arrangements for, you know, getting family out on the ice for the post Stanley Cup celebrations. Yeah. To which I would reply, I believe that because um, it was either Lawrence Gilman or Mike Gillis in interviews that I've heard were talking about how. Looking back, they did get a little distracted by some of that stuff. And you do have a lot of non-game stuff that you have to worry about, such as getting out the family to a place like Boston and, yeah. and arranging all that sort of stuff. And the Canucks, uh, Gilman and Gillis, have both admitted that in hindsight, they would have handled some things a little bit differently. That would have included how they dealt with the media and how they felt about some of the things that were being said about the Canucks during the Stanley Cup final. In a way, and um, I brought this up with Mike, I think off air. Okay. The Canucks in the Stanley Cup final reminded me a bit, or maybe it's the other way around, of Canada at the World Cup. Because Canada at the World Cup, sure. it was a great story that they made it to the World Cup. But then when they came, when they were center stage and things started to go a little bit pear-shaped, I don't think they handled that very well. They lost their composure a little they bit. They lost right? their composure. They made some comments. John Herman made a comment about Croatia that he'll probably look back on and say- He did? I'm going to- I'm Maybe I shouldn't have done that. And people called them out for it. And- even though it all started out really well, especially you know with the way they started against Belgium and the fact that they just got there, they didn't handle the moment very well. Now, as to this whole thing about Chara seeing or hearing about the Canucks raising the Stanley Cup on the ice, I think that's probably myth. Yeah. Um, and Kevin Bieksa apparently is going to address this on Saturday on Hockey has. Night in Canada. So Jeff Merrick, host of the Jeff Merrick Show here on the Sportsnet Radio Network, uh, tweeted out yesterday that he texted Bieksa right away. Bieksa said this never happened, 100% didn't happen. And you're right, Jason. It sounds as though uh, Bieksa, I mean, it makes sense. He's going to be working Hockey Night in Canada on Saturday. The Canucks are on, of course, 7 o'clock, Rogers Arena against Minnesota. And Bieksa will be there. I assume that this is good. So we're really setting the table here for what's going to I, – I, I am I'm sorry. I'm looking forward to watching that. This yeah. is going to be good. I'm sorry if this is driving you nuts and lots of people in the Dunbar Lumber text line don't want to hear this. And fair enough, I don't blame you, but this is going to be a talking point, not just today, but Saturday as well. Uh, Has there been a Stanley Cup final like this? Like I, I know we're this we're, is one of the most contentious or hated that I could ever think of in, in yeah. my lifetime. Yeah, like, and, we're the two teams that like, hated each other. That and we much. always we obviously have a, a have a bias um, here, but I think I, I've seen comments from even those outside the market that are like, it's incredible that they're still talking about this Stanley Cup final. And I think uh, the main reason is that 
Vancouver's never won a Stanley Cup before, at least the Canucks have never won the Stanley Cup before, and we were so close, and the way it went, how pear-shaped it went, and how the Canucks were really... Listen, I know some people don't like to hear this because they're like, the Sedins were so classy. Like, how could you hate the Canucks? The Canucks were the perfect team to hate. Yep. They really were. They were cocky. And Torres, they, Perrier, they had Burroughs. They had Max Lapierre and Alex Burroughs on the same team. And, Chris and Kessler. Kessler. <laughs> like four guys Kessler. there on that yeah. roster. That and Luongo was, making, Luongo was making comments during, during the series. Like, it, it, people act so surprised that – the Canucks were made out to be the villains, even though the Boston Bruins were the big bad team, and people would say like, "Oh, they're so dirty." But the Canucks were, <laughs> the Canucks were a little bit weaselly, right? You know, like in in the do you remember Lapierre like faking and getting, uh, you know, uh, I think he someone sticked him in the in the cup or something like that, and, and like he faked it like he was just like hurt so badly. Like that's the type of team. That you just really, really want to hate. Well, can I also okay? Just I'm going to get hell for this in the in the Dunbar Lumber text uh, line because even 11 should. years no, later, I mean, people shouldn't. will not we people s- will not admit that some people will not admit that the Canucks no, were hateable. That the Canucks were a hundred percent hateable. Yeah, 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 but, totally. yeah but, that, but we said that before. I mean, I don't think that's anything like revelatory or new. I think it, what everyone has to understand about why this series has taken on the life that it has. And part of it was uh, something happened between two teams that, quite frankly, had no history going into that series. And the hate was instantaneous. And if you look at the 11 Stanley Cup finals since then, that has been completely bereft. There has been, I mean, we've covered, I'd say, two-thirds of them, up close and personal, boots on the ground. There was not even close to the same sentiment. Anyway, I mean, look, look at... uh, Remember 2012 between the Kings and the Devils? <laughs> Barely. Do you remember? Devils are just happy to be there. Do you yeah. remember like 2015, Chicago, Tampa Bay? Like, There's no real discernible moments from that. There was a couple of moments from... Which like, one? I, I, I remember... Okay. The one that we were kind of hoping would get nasty would be the Penguins and Predators just because you had the Crosby, Subban... But like, yeah, but like, but it didn't come close. It didn't. It, no. I'm not saying that, but I remember um, covering those and being like, looking for some sort of, uh, just looking a for hook. some sort of hook. Yeah. And it was just, it was just a high. And, and, and unfortunately, and this is what we were talking about earlier in the week. I think the league has lost some of this. I think the league has lost some of the the hate, some of the rivalries. We we've we've we, you know what what we're Vegas I guess had had a decent rivalry with um, Washington. No. Oh, um, in, the, in the Cup final, I'm talking about. You're talking about the Vegas goal, uh, San Jose rivalry. Yeah, like yeah. that was that was a that was, okay. that was a decent rivalry, but I don't think I don't think it matched Vancouver Chicago or even Vancouver Boston, which continued on for a few years. Yeah. People always talk about Game Eight. There are other games too, like when Boston came to Vancouver. And Marchant was doing the whole cup raising thing. He was and, practicing, and he accused of accused Kessler of like gouging his eyes out and everything. Like it, it just like it it hurts as a Vancouver Canucks fan that you know we lost that Stanley Cup Stanley Cup final, but it was man, that was fun. Like the whole thing was just such a rush and we don't have that anymore in the NHL. I, I, or at least maybe we've just not been part of it here in Vancouver because the Canucks haven't been part of it. Yeah, there is a bias for sure. But what is the best rivalry in the NHL right now? Make a good point. Oh, I don't think there is one. 
What is the best one? What What is the one where you're just like, Leafs these, like, no. the yeah. Leafs in themselves? No. Yeah. I mean, no, no. Battle though, of Alberta was, <laughs> but they trade, they lost Kachuk of the, the Battle of Alberta. That was the best and one. the Battle of Alberta didn't, like, that whole series, the, the, the Kings-Oilers series was a better series than that series. Yeah, but the playoff series wasn't great, but the regular season matchups, yeah. when Cassian was going uh, after, that was yeah, decent, but Cassian's guess. gone and Kachuk's gone. Um, Multiple people, like 20 people now at this point, have pointed out in the text box, it's probably worth mentioning, the fact that Chara says first in the same quote, we saw and then changes to we heard about this, just completely shoots down any yeah, possibility that this could be true. A couple truth bombs here. One, Chara's just playing it up because he's on a podcast with Edelman and a stand-up comedian, right? And you don't get a guy on a podcast to say nothing of interest. It's a podcast. Everyone's got to say something. And to be quite honest, we now live... In a time where it doesn't really matter. There's no, like, it's not going to ruin Chara's reputation. Nothing's going to come of this. He could have said anything. Could have he said, does they, a film of them. He could have said Burroughs was pouring sugar in my gas tank. Like, he, you know, it doesn't I'd make, actually believe that one, too. Right. Burroughs is like, how'd they find out? Yeah. <laughs> Zut, alors, they found out. Uh, now, I'll say this. Someone texted in, why do we do this every two weeks? So I was thinking about this. I've come to the sad realization that 2011 and 94... Um, are maybe two of the best Stanley Cups of all time, Stanley Cup Finals? A thousand percent. And a thousand percent. when you yeah. get to that apex, that summit, and you lose... Both of them. That's a defining characteristic that's going to be with you for the rest of your life. So don't say, why are we revisiting it? Because you're not revisiting anything. This is now part of the Canucks persona mm-hmm. forever. Like, for those of you that think that 94 and 2011... Like, it's not going to be like Bill Buckner when the Red Sox won the World Series. Like, the curse ain't going to be lifted. It's not a curse. That's part of your identity. I don't know what to tell you. But it, like, did, but it did make it easier to stomach when the Red Sox finally won the World Series. And if the Buffalo Bills, with this current group of players, can win a Super Bowl, it is going to make those four straight Super Bowl losses more stomachable I, for people that went through that because they will have something to – latch on to and say, you know what, despite the fact that we had to deal with that, we stuck with this team, mm-hmm. we kept following this team, and finally it became worthwhile that that we saw this moment. And I honestly think that there are still echoes of 2011 with this team currently 11 years later. Uh, the there are still echoes. I'll never forget. Uh, it was Tim Kawakami who used to write for, in the Bay Area. Now he's with the Athletic. I think he was writing about the San Jose Sharks after they blew that three nothing series lead against the Kings. I think it was in the first or second round of 2014 playoffs. Remember that? Mm-hmm. And he said that the organization had a nervous breakdown. Yeah, from the top to the bottom, and they said they just couldn't escape the what they had done. What had happened? That they had blown such a good opportunity, and mm-hmm. they like. Then they started stripping the captain every season, and Doug Wilson was like, "I'm gonna make a bunch of crazy trades." Yeah, you and lose your way. You, so, lo- you lose your way, and that's what that's what happened to the. So Canucks. here's the thing: like you mentioned, the Red Sox, and they have a long litany of losing, like painful, painful, painful losses. Right? Um, there's something different though about being in Game Seven of the championship of your sport twice in unforgettable historic series and coming up empty. It's just a unique level of suffering and pain, and it it, form, it forms you as a fan. So don't don't get upset at any time anyone revisits that. Because we're talking – you know the reason we're talking about a decade later is because every other Stanley Cup final since then, quite honestly, has not even come close to living up to how much drama and how much mm-hmm. intrigue there was in that. The ratings for that thing were off the charts, and I remember – 
the American network being a little bit worried about that series because it had a Canadian team in it. And the more that series went on, they were probably thinking after game two, like, this is going to be awful. Yeah. Like, but, don't, like, but when the Bruins, when the Bru- game three was the, it, it turned, it turned everything because first of all, there was the Aaron Rome hit on Nathan Horton, but also, and I think honestly, more importantly was the fact that the Canucks, it, they became beatable with that game because they absolutely fell apart in game three. And that's why I always revisit. I'm like, AV should have pulled Luongo, get him out of there after the second period. And then it's not as bad that things went so badly in the third period. Right. That's, that's what should have happened. It didn't whatever, what, but when the Bruins won that game, because they won it in such a deciding fashion, because they didn't just, scratch and claw to beat the Canucks. They absolutely embarrassed them. They were all over them. Mm-hmm. They gained that belief because they did not have that belief. I've told this story a few times. I was in Boston ahead of game three. I went to Fenway to see a Red Sox game. There was nobody wearing Bruins gear. Nobody believed that the Bruins were going to come back and win that Stanley Cup. The media, mm-hmm. the national media was thinking this is going to be a sweep mm-hmm. because the Canucks... Everyone was thinking that this is just their time. They'd won the President's Trophy. They'd been dominant that year. They'd gotten over the hump. They'd slayed the Dragon against the Chicago Blackhawks. They'd handled the next two series fairly easily, Nashville, San Jose, and then they win the first two games of the Stanley Cup Final. So it doesn't surprise me to hear that the Canucks were a little bit cocky. The Canucks thought very highly of themselves. They had a confidence. They had a swagger. Game three knocked them off knocked them off balance in a big way. And even though they did come back to win game five, I don't think they ever recovered from what happened in game three. Uh, okay. Let's do a couple. Oh, other... no, I'm depressed. Why? Thanks Jason. This is, just, this is who you are now. I can't <laughs> believe you guys went through that whole discussion without mentioning the, the burgeoning Tim Thomas, illegal gear story from oh, the 20. I don't, uh, there's too many like this, but this is again, came out in a court case. Yeah. It's, but this is what real. I'm saying is like a real that, thing that, that happened. 2011 Stanley cup final had, I don't know, 15 different flashpoint moments that everyone either remembers or forgets because there's so much other stuff. When's to the remember. documentary, by the way? Well, there, there should be one. one. There, there's there so really many angles be. you can play. Here's one, the thing yeah. Boston's been back to the Stanley Cup final twice since 2011. And there's no, and I know that they lost, it's the difference, but mm-hmm. nobody's talking about the great war stories from their series in 2013 against the Blackhawks. What do you remember about that series? I remember well, them Brian, giving up two goals and was it Bickle, 15 seconds? Bickle and Boland scoring at the end of it. Yeah. I don't even remember how many. I think it went six games. And then the twenty the 2019 Stanley Cup final against the Blues. That was a painful loss for the Bruins, though. Right, but it. Let's talk about that. For it a didn't, but it didn't really like res. Like they just, I just kind remember of almost, drunk Brent Hall. That's all I remember. Well, I don't think yeah. it resonated in Canada so much because everyone was focused on the Raptors run then. Yeah, that's true as well. And that, and that, that I really enjoyed that series. I thought it was a terrific series. It was. It just doesn't, like, again, if you go into Boston and they're like, how painful was it that you lost in 2019? I'm not sure if, I mean, I'm sure the players. Well, it would have right? been way more painful if they had lost in 2011 and then that was their third straight Stanley Cup. But well, they, exactly. they won it, They won right? the Stanley Cup. They yeah. won it. And then you look at some, like, again, we're talking about a decade here where the Penguins won back-to-back Stanley Cups. Mm-hmm. Like, that team should be celebrated as one of the greatest little mini dynasties of all time. But it was like... Yeah, they beat Nashville in one of the finals, and they beat the Sharks in the other one. And from right from the beginning, it looked like they were going to win. Yeah, what was the best Stanley Cup final since 2011? Maybe St. Louis-Boston. Yeah. I'll tell you what it wasn't. 
Tampa Bay Dallas in the bubble. <laughs> oh God! <laughs> I, I guess the most forgettable Stanley Cup. Terry Perry was there. Do you think that. the NHL is at at all concerned about yes. about the lack of? I don't want to say emotion, but maybe emotion. The lack of uh, passion. The lack of hate in the NHL right now, because I'm sure right now they're they're thrilled with the skill level. They're thrilled with all the goals. They're thrilled with. Uh, players like McDavid and you know what Mitch Marner and Austin Matthews and all these and like Elias Pettersson, all these types of players that are unbelievably skilled to the point yeah. where you're watching these games and no lead is safe. That's great. Like they've wanted this for for a while, but now I wonder if there's some people in the league that are like, man, you know what really gets fans going, especially around playoff time, is rivalries. So on that, the, I think the biggest issue that the NHL playoffs, the Stanley Cup playoffs have right now is that it peaks in the first round and your interest wanes after that. I think the most interesting series over the last few years have been in the first round. I think most of the uh, questionable, all the stuff that makes it, the, the back and forth, the questionable hits, the overtimes, yeah. the upsets, it's all the, the most memorable moments kind of tend to happen in the first round because mm-hmm. it's kind of geared to be that way. Teams are so juiced up. And here's the key, probably at their healthiest in the first round. Like, I've seen some uh, conference finals and Stanley Cup finals. Like, And it, it almost, you kind of look back and you're like, well, you've won the war of attrition. And now you're in the cup final. Can you hang on? The last couple of years, like, I feel bad for Tampa Bay because so much of their, this epic run that they've been on with two Stanley Cups and a third Stanley Cup final got interrupted due to COVID. Like, they won one in the bubble and all that. And I, so that's that's a whole entirely different thing. But I feel like, un, for better or for worse, the Stanley Cup playoffs peak in the first round and then general interest wanes now. How significant is it a, fa- is it a factor in these Stanley Cup finals, if you want to say they're lacking a bit of passion, or at least compared to 2011, that it hasn't been a Canadian team in the final. I know Montreal made it in 2021. It's, it wasn't the same thing. We were still in yeah. restrictions. It just it wasn't the same because it's tough. It's tough. when you have a Canadian team in there, um, obviously you're going to have more attention on it. You're going to have more pressure on those players. You're going to have more media coverage. Even some of the teams that have been involved lately, like you know, Tampa Bay is a good non-traditional hockey market. But I don't think the city as a whole lives and dies with the Lightning. They're just happy to have them. And we've we've been to these, like we've been to LA when they've been in the Stanley Cup final. And yeah, Kings fans are excited. But there isn't that feeling like if the Kings don't win this, my life will be forever altered. We're gonna burn down LA. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, there just there just isn't in that. And and I think when there are fan bases involved that really, 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 really care, that translates to the players, that translates to the series, and it translates to that feeling of out of control. Like That's what the 2011 Stanley Cup Final was. There was a feeling of, man, we don't know what's going to happen next. Let's face it, a lot of the games were blowouts, especially the ones that Boston won. They weren't especially compelling, all of them, but... It was the on-ice antics. It was the the media avails where you never knew what was going to happen and you had questions about this and that. Like That's when the energy really ramps up, and I just I don't know if we've had that. 
Max in New West. Uh, he says, I don't know, guys. The finals last year was amazing. Easily some of the best hockey I've ever watched in my life. It was all-star level hockey, and that's what fans want to see. I don't disagree with you that the level was the hockey insane. was awesome. The here's, abs were amazing. Here's the thing. How often do you talk about it? How often do fans in those markets talk about it? My wife's an abs fan. I hear about it quite regularly. Really? Yeah. She's like, do you remember game three of the 2022 Stanley Cup finals, Gregory? And then you say, yes, yes. I do. Yeah. Hyper-specific moments, yeah. Yeah, and again, this is obviously from, we. I mean, we live in a very insulated bubble here in Vancouver where we're pretty hyper-focused on certain things, and we're out on the West Coast. But we've also, like, we've had a pretty unique experience. Jason and I have been able to do done this on a national level, and you can just tell when things resonate mm -hmm. in a major way. And you can tell when they don't. When the Rangers and Kings went to the Stanley Cup Final in 2014, everyone was like, this is a marketer's dream. None of the big four have had New York <laughs> versus L.A. in a championship. <laughs> And it was cool from a glitz and glamour perspective. We were flying back and forth across, back and forth across the country from JFK to LAX, and then back and forth. But you get to the cities, and, and it's the just, series was over in five games. But it's also just not the same. Yeah, nothing, nothing captures LA. Nothing captures New York. The cities are too busy and, and too, too diverse, and they're too big, right? But here's the thing: the Stanley Cup comes to Vancouver. Everything gets put on halt. And then when it's over, they burn everything. <laughs> it's, like a, it's like a bonfire. Yeah, it's the stakes are high. <laughs> uh, I got to go to break. We'll come back in the 8 o'clock hour. Moj is going to join us for some football talk. And then at 8.30, we're going to do a bunch of giveaways. Canucks tickets and the Scenic Rush Grand Prize giveaway. Hey, Doug, do you have something? You're just looking at me longingly, quizzically, if you will. Puppy dog eyes. I just hope you ask the Moj about 2011. That's all you should talk well, about. Well, I think we should ask Moj about the lack of rivalries in the NHL. And I mean, Moj is an old school guy, too. And, you know, he'll say, like, I was, I was at Queens Park Arena watching yeah. the New West Bruins. And <laughs> that was a that rivalry. That was hockey, right? That was like, a rivalry. <laughs> yeah. So we'll talk to Moj about that. Um, lots more to come. Final hour of the Halford and Bruff Show on Sportsnet 650.